Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live Q&A session. My name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago. And since then, we've counseled people in over 65 countries. We've been doing this for a really long time. We started doing these Q&As at the beginning of the pandemic and we haven't stopped. I did take a break last week. I actually went on vacation, which I never do. So hopefully uh, you guys miss me. Um, we're just going to jump in and start doing some questions, some Q&A. Uh, just for those of you that are new, what licensing is, is renting or leasing your product idea or your product to a company, and they will then pay you royalties. So they will pay you, it's going to be their money. So you don't need to raise money when you're licensing. These large companies have unlimited uh, funds for products that sell well. Um, so no need to raise money, um, no need to hire people because it's going to be their workforce, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They are all working on your product along with the 20, 50, 100, 200 other products they have. So companies, when they're you license to them, they're a machine and they have all these products. And then you plug your product into that machine. That's what you want to think about it. So you don't need money. You don't need a workforce. And then you don't need to create all the distribution from scratch. Retailers don't like to talk to one SKU, one product companies. But when you license to a big company, they're not a one product company. They may have 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 products. And now your product is one more of their products. So not only can they get products in stores, but their manufacturer reps that talk to the buyers at these stores or distributors can keep it in there. That's one thing to be able to get it in there. But it's another thing to be able to keep it in there. So they do things to, to maintain that, that distribution. So um, let's just jump in. We've got a few good questions already. Type your questions into the chat. Everything that I share should not be considered legal advice. Please seek the services of an attorney if you're seeking legal advice. Um, and that's my little disclaimer there. Um, also, I, on these chats, I don't always know all the details. So I'm going to give a general answer that's going to benefit you and the audience. But I might not have all the details. And we don't have time to go into all the details. So um, take it with a grain of salt. But usually it's pretty damn accurate. But I might be missing some stuff you didn't tell me. Right? Or there might be other facts. Um, we might not go that deep. But um, people seem to think I do a pretty good job. And so let's get going. Um, Kevin says, Andrew, I got my first no on the grounds. I didn't have a patent. Is there anything that could be said to reignite interest or should I move on? As I was told, the concept was interesting, but without a patent, they couldn't move forward. Um, Kevin, any company that tells you that you need a patent, first off, the, your response is be, let, yeah, I have patent pending status. And you should file a provisional patent application. You can file one at the patent office for 75 bucks and say, yeah, I'm patent pending. So one thing that you could do, so when I answer questions, I like to answer the question for the person. I like to answer it for everybody too. So one thing when a company says that, yeah, I'm patent pending, you know, you can legally say you're patent pending when you file a provisional patent application in common English yourself for 75 bucks. So that's one thing to, to say. Now, if this company is seriously telling you, unless you have an issued patent, they won't license from you, they are archaic. Um, to file a patent and sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue and then try to license it, that's just straight up stupid. That's not a good use of your money. It won't work out well for you. That's not something you want to do. Um, and any company that 
will say the only license you had issued patent, they are a dinosaur, a dinosaur. Um, or they're in one of very few super difficult um, areas. So what you can say is you can try to continue the conversation, Kevin, and say, yeah, I'm actually in the process of getting patent pending status. Are you telling me that you will not license it until it issues? Because people do licensing deals all the time with um, products pending, with patents pending. Our students, I would say, nine, I'm guessing this isn't a statistic, guys, but 90 to 95% of our students do deals with a provisional patent application. You know, and the only ones, the other ones that don't is because they ran and went to a patent attorney, spent a bunch of money. And now they're like, I know, Andrew, I know I don't want to file a patent every time I have an idea. I want to do a provisional. But the reason why they have a patent is because they they thought they had to before they met us and they realized they don't in order to do a licensing deal. Another common misperception is people think that you need to have sold um, some product in order to do a licensing deal. That's not true at all. Again, the vast majority of our students have never sold a single unit and they are able to do licensing deals. So that's kind of a related subject. Uh, Matt says, when submitting product ideas to potential companies and the product has several product extensions, should you divulge all the extensions or limit it to maybe two? Um, no, you shouldn't. You really got to put your best foot forward. Put the, the main product, and in some cases, most of the time, no, but I've seen cases I'm like, yeah, you know, when you want to make that the main picture, the big hero picture, and you might have a small picture that says optional, um, you know, uh, variation or optional accessory or something like that. But um, you're saying your product has several product extensions. Okay. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't go more than one or two. Most of the times I, I would suggest none at all. But, you know, this is one of those situations, Matt, without looking at your product, I couldn't say. Um, but I definitely limit it to two with the product extensions. Um, it depends. Like if, if the product extensions make the whole product make sense and the product by itself without the extensions don't make sense, well, then you got to include the extensions. But if it's like, oh, this is just something extra that they could sell with it, or as an add-on or something like that, um, then I would limit it to two definitely and maybe just one and make those pictures much smaller so they're getting the main benefit of your product in the sell sheet or in the video and then it's just kind of an afterthought and they're going to see it. They're like, oh, but it doesn't include this. And they're like, oh, oh, you know, he's got an option there for that. Or also that they can ignore your extensions and options. So by playing it down a little bit, they can ignore it. But if they're looking for it, they'll find it. And that way you can kind of get both um, both ends of it. But if it's just completely different products and stuff, no. But if it's an extension, it can make sense. Again, without seeing your product, I can't guide you specifically. Um, but I think you'll prob probably be fine. Um, this one is from Jeff. Do you have a script that provides an eloquent way to explain licensing to those companies that don't know what it is without using the words behind the times or dinosaur? Yes, that's so good, Jeff. So you're a dinosaur. You guys don't know what licensing is? Um, yeah, so you, you just say, because sometimes there's confusion and it's not always a bad thing at the beginning. If they're like, well, what are you looking for? Like they're kind of intrigued by the product and they got back to you via email or you set up a time to talk with them. 
And they're like, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for a, a reasonable royalty per unit, a small royalty per unit. Even say they use the word small, small royalty per unit. So when you guys make money, I get paid that money per unit quarterly. Um, and of course, they're like, oh, okay. He doesn't want to start a business with us. He doesn't want to be our business partners. We don't want those things. These big companies don't want to partner up with some individual inventor in that now you're their business partner and you're, you're part of their core structure. Like you're on their board of directors and you have a position in the company. That's not what 99% of companies want. They just want your cool product and get your feedback. And some of them will be like, yeah, we're good. We got it from here. If we need your advice, we will. Other ones are like, want you to be very involved and some ones are somewhat in between. So um, saying you're looking for a small royalty per unit. So when they make money, you make money. So now they're not like, oh, he's not like that wacky guy that was asking us for 100K up front, right? Um, so that's very, very, very important because what you do when you say that is you separate yourself from the wacky inventors that have reached out to them. So that's important, okay? Um, let's see. Our IT guy just texted me. He's tired. <laughs> I think he <laughs> Let me text him back. Um. I was asking him to do something. I told him it wasn't urgent, though. Um, so now when you say that, well, I'm looking for a small royalty per unit. Um, so when you get paid, when you make money, I get paid. And their knee-jerk reaction is going to be this. Can be, what would that be? And the answer is, well, it, it all depends on what you're going to do with the product. We can approach that at a later date once I know more information. Um, and I want to, I would like to know what, if you were to take this product on, say, if, what would you do with it? Because just because they set up a phone call with you doesn't mean they're fully committed, you know, on your first call or the first email. And I think there's this perception that a contract's going to follow like the next week and it's not. And if it does, that's a red flag to pretty much most of the time. Um, not always, but most of the time. So on average, our students, once they get interest, it's two to three months before a contract is signed and plenty of them fall off. It's normal. Reach out to 30 companies, get interest from five, four fall off. You end up doing a deal with one. Maybe only one shows interest. You end up doing a deal with that one. Maybe you don't do a deal. Not everybody does a deal on every product they work on. Maybe you push it out later, you know, four, five, six months later to the same companies that said no. And now they say yes because they're, they were busy before. They didn't say no because they didn't like your product. They said no because they were too busy to deal with it. And you didn't know that. Um, I was sharing that with somebody this morning. Um, so, um, Jeff, that's how you handle it and say, you know, well, oh, for, yeah, it's a small royalty and I would need to understand where you're going to place the product and what you're going to do with it. And then I could send you a term sheet. Yeah, we can get there, but I don't think we're quite there. Yet. We're just talking now. I don't have an idea of what you do with it. If they come out, oh, we do this and this and this and be like, oh, great. Right. But I don't think it's like after that first call, usually that you send a term sheet. That's not the right deal flow. And deal flow with licensing deals is very, very important. It's very, very specific to licensing. That's why even though our students have a coach throughout the entire process, one-on-one, -on -one, we put them on with Paul, our negotiation coach. He's a specialist, just does negotiations for our students. And it's it's not always what you think. You're Oh, Paul, we can move this, push it forward. He's like, no. Lay back, let them think on what you just said. Let's get back to them in a week or let's get back to them in two weeks and they get some quotes back from wherever or when they have this meeting. It's very strategic. But when you know how to do it, we want our students to know how to do that so they can say, I get it, guys. I don't need you anymore. I can do that myself now. You know, um, 
but at the beginning, you always want somebody to help you with that because it gets pretty dicey. I, I've, I've talked to inventors that are not our students that got interest and they tell me the way their deal went and died. And I'm like, whoa, you did like everything wrong on that call or you did enough things wrong to kill it. Um, so you can work hard to get deals on the table, but if you don't do the right things, um, and it's not always what you think. You can be pretty laid back. You can be pretty, you can be you. You don't have to come across as a captive industry, but you want to kind of, just by the nature of the questions that you're asking, they're going to think you're smart and you're going to be already separated from um, other other inventors that are submitting ideas. I'm going to turn off my Skype so nobody disturbs us. Um, okay. Yeah, smaller crowd today. Wow, that's interesting. I don't know why. Um, let's see. William says, what if an inventor pitches a product to a company and they like the problem being solved, <coughs> but they want to do it a totally different way? Doesn't this create a sticky situation for both parties? Well, I think you should be very open to hearing their criticisms of your product and say, hey, um, let me think on that. I'll come back with some solutions. You, if you can figure out some solutions, then you just file another $75 provisional and then you show them your solutions. You'll always be faster than them. So um, I don't think that creates a sticky situation. I think that it, it, you've, you've created an opportunity by showing them your first product. You've been able to actively engage with them about what they like and don't like the product. And then you're willing to change what the product is in order to license that change product. I think it's great. That's fantastic. That means you're in the game. I don't think it creates a sticky situation. Um, I could, but I don't really see. I've been doing this 21 years in InventRight. I don't see that creating a sticky situation um, almost ever. Um, Raul, hi, Andrew. When I joined InventRight Coaching, will that help me evaluate and decide which product to focus on? Yeah. So when we have new students that come on board and you got to like, you know, I got these three ideas. I work on any of them or five. So the coach will go over the upsides and downsides of project number one, project number two, three, four, five, however many you got. We usually limit to three or five because we're just looking for one to start with, right? Um, and now they can't, their opinion should not be based on what they like. That's not a good coach. Their opinion is always based in the marketplace. So if you have three ideas and they see you did your research on two, they could give you their opinion on those two based on the research that you shared with them. But they can, sometimes they'll see you didn't do beans for research number three. You need to go out and bring this back. We'll look at it together and we'll figure it out. And then we'll look at the upsides and downsides of that. And so, yeah, sometimes the coach is like, oh, number two is the bomb. That's a great first project when you're new to licensing and pretty much any time they might say. Um, and you thought the bomb was number one. And number three is pretty good too, but you got a little look into here, look into that. And number one, ugh, I don't know, I have some issues. Like, to be honest with you, if you came up with some more, I might work on something else other than this. It has a fair amount of issues, you know, they might say. So, and by doing that, you're learning how to evaluate products. So absolutely, we love teaching those skills to our students. Sometimes we don't, we don't get to, or we get to during the tail end of their membership, because they're just so focused on one product. They weren't like, oh, I'm open to work on any of these. And that's fine. Um, and then later they're like, oh, hey, I got you know two or three different projects. I don't know which one to work on. Maybe they won't even work on it during their six-month membership with us, but they'll talk to their coach before they leave 
to get their take on it. And then they'll decide later which project they want to work on. Um, uh, Jacques says, uh, which is better offer to take from a company, a percentage or a cash out deal? A percentage every time, Jacques. Um, the, the, if you ask for a bunch of upfront money, that is the best way to kill a deal. That's complete and utter amateur hour. Totally. The only time that makes sense is if you've started your business and you have distribution in 10,000 stores and you have inventory. Okay. Well, then you're kind of selling your company plus doing a licensing deal and getting royalties for future sales. Okay. That makes sense. But most people, they haven't sold a single one or whatever they sold is really minimal. And so to ask for a bunch of upfront money, this could be, so let's say it's a product that really you kind of analyze it. We help our students analyze you know, based on the company and where they're selling and what they're saying and questions you ask, what kind of deal this is. But let's let's say it's a deal for 150K where you'd be making 150K in royalties a year, okay? Which is a really good product, right? Pretty much every company would hesitate to even give you 20K upfront as like, oh, we'll just buy us out for 20. They don't want to take that chance. They're already risking tons of money, getting everybody in the company working on this new product. And to give you cash when they haven't sold a single unit yet, it doesn't go over well with even the largest companies. So it's unless you're just absolutely, hey, some people are in certain situations. Unless you're absolutely desperate for cash, which you shouldn't be doing licensing if you're doing that, because licensing, it takes a while. You can make a lot of money with licensing, but it's not overnight. So, but if you're desperate for cash and you're like, oh, you know, okay, I'd be happy with taking 10K on this little product. But but that same product maybe could have been earning you 50K a year in royalties, sells for five years, it's a quarter million dollars. It's just outright stupid. So they don't want to do it. They do not want to do it. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't do it if I were them. Um, and when they bring it up, it's because some inventor took a terrible deal. And I'm convinced it's one of the reasons why, like the hardware business, like every handyman and his grandmother, or a handyman, maybe not his grandmother, uh, has an invention because they're handyman. They come up with handy stuff, right? And there's been too many handymen that just said, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll take I'll take 15k on a product that over its life could have earned them a half a million dollars," you know, and that messes it up for you. So when companies go there, you go ain't doing it. I'm just looking for a small royalty per unit. So when you guys make money, I make money. Don't even entertain it. It's a mess. Don't do it. They won't pay you what it's worth. So Jacques, if you didn't get my opinion on that, you weren't listening. I think you got, got it loud and clear. Don't, don't do it. Uh, Lindsay said, I have a truck bed accessory. I have a pickup truck too. I was never really a pickup guy, more sports car guy, but then I got a, a fifth wheel trailer. I actually lived in it for a year and traveled around while I worked. Um, I had the Verizon hotspot before anybody else had it. Other people had it, of course, but people were like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's my internet connection. And so I, I did that a long time ago. So I bought a truck and then I never went back. I had my big diesel truck ever since, which um, is kind of weird. My wife has a little sports car, so I drive that too. But um, anyway, so sorry for rambling on that. <laughs> Getting back to the question, Lindsay. I have a truck bed accessory. I have have a PPA, great, and I've called some companies. Not much interest. Should I go to truck accessory stores and ask if they could sell it so that I can tell manufacturers there's interest? 
No, I don't think you're there yet. You said you've called some companies and not much interest. So some is too few. So uh, automotive aftermarket is a great business. Automotive, like, hey, uh, Volkswagen, GM, Mercedes, you should put this all in your cars coming off the line. You might as well shoot your head in the re- yourself in the head right now trying to get that done. But automotive aftermarket, huge. Absolutely huge. Tons of companies, billions of dollars of business. It's a huge industry. So, Lindsay, if you've called, first of all, is your sales sheet and your marketing good? I talk to inventors all the time. A lot of them are fans of ours. And I'm like, dude, that sell sheet sucks. And sometimes like they do marketing for a living. And I look at it, I'm like, this marketing is terrible. Like, and I don't really get it. Now I studied marketing in school. I didn't learn crap about marketing in school. I learned marketing by being a consumer. I really don't understand it. I really don't understand when you live in a, uh, the U.S. and work marketed to constantly that you wouldn't understand it how to do a halfway decent job marketing your product back to the end user. But it's true. So even Americans, you can imagine in countries where they market very little stuff, how they might have a problem. Even Americans are not that good at doing marketing naturally. Now, when we get done with our students, we're, they're good because we walk them through the paces. And they need to get it in like six to 10 seconds. So Lindsay, you you approached a few or some. So great, good on you. You're in the game. You're realizing it's not that, not that uh, scary. But, and you know, I don't, I'm not gonna look at your sell sheet, but, and I'm not saying you should take a look at your marketing materials. And what you can do is you can do this, which is free. It's called the, the computer or laptop test. So you put your sell sheet or video on your lap, preferably a laptop, but you could stand behind a desktop too. And you show it to somebody, you, it could be friends, family, could be super critical person, could be super supportive person, doesn't matter, or it could be somewhere in between. And But it has to be somebody you've never shown your marketing materials before to, okay? So you stand behind the computer, you don't say a damn thing, and you open it up and they look at it and you look at the expression on their face, you see if they're trying to figure it out. If they're not getting it six to 10 seconds, it ain't good enough. They're asking questions that make it very clear that they need more clarity on how this product works. It's not good enough. So that's a free test that you can do. So I would go ahead and do that, Lindsay. Do it with some friends and family. It can't be anybody you've ever shown it to before and see what their reaction is. And don't say, if they start asking questions, don't say anything and let them keep asking questions and go, oh, that wasn't clear. Okay, need to make that more clear. Or just, you know, you can tell by the look on their face. They're looking around, they're looking down, they're looking up. They're like, Huh? You know, it's not good enough. Okay. Um, so I'm not saying it's your marketing materials, but it could be, but you haven't reached out to 30 companies in, in, especially with truck accessories, you should have at least 30 companies. So you haven't even begun to start. So there's the good news, but don't reach out to 30 companies with crappy marketing materials. So make sure your marketing materials are good and then reach out to more companies. Um, uh, I don't think you're at the point where you have to reach out to retailers and talk to a buyer and say, oh, they're like, and they're like, oh, we want this. And you're like, well, I'm not selling it. I want to license it. If I license it to one of your vendors, would you buy it? Oh, yeah. You mean you can do that, but you're not there yet. You can do that at what we call pull through marketing. But I I would um, make sure your marketing materials are good and reach out to more companies. You just started. And maybe your idea of uh, called some, yeah, you're, you're, you're giving up too soon. You know, um, 
And if if they're not saying no, that doesn't mean they're not interested. You have to keep following up like crazy until they say no. So um, Margie, hi, Andrew. Will you and Stephen be accepting sell sheets again to review anytime soon? Do you recommend the sell sheet and video include the statement, this is a confidential disclosure? Um, so yeah, I mean, over the years, we've done a couple times where we've, we've, uh, reviewed, I think the times we've done it, a bunch of people sent in the sell sheets and then Steve and I got on and we reviewed like two or three of them. Um, but, uh, I don't think we have any plans to do that anytime soon. When we review sell sheets with our students, well, first off, we're helping them make the sell sheet. Rarely do they have a sell sheet that's good enough, um, but I have to tell you, when we see sell sheets from our fans, it's it's rarely good enough. I, I hate to say that, but it's true. Um, so I gave you a tip there that you can use with your fen- friends and family to make it better. Um, but some people, if you just don't have marketing experience and you're not used to marketing stuff, it, it's hard. But it's it's a skill that every single one of you listening needs to develop and get good at. Um, cause you don't want to have to depend on an event, right? Coach or some marketing guru or uncle Bob that says he's good and he's not, you know, you should be able to do it. Um, now you always, when our students do sell sheets, the coach guides them on what a good sell sheet is. They go back and forth. So they learn. So coaches are like, do this, this, and this, and then we'll just send it off. Like they're like, they let the students struggle a little bit with it. Well, you know, these are my suggestions, do this, come back so that they learn, they become empowered. Um, and then when the coach and the student believe it's good, then we send it to a design studio to make it pretty. Um, if you send it to a graphic designer, realize most graphic designers aren't marketers. It'll be a pretty piece of junk. If you give them crap in, you're going to get crap out. You're going to get a, a, a ugly piece of crap going in, which is your marketing thoughts, and then a beautiful piece of crap coming out. I don't know why I'm swearing today, which is a beautiful looking sell sheet, but it's not getting the point across because the graphic designer just did whatever you told them and your marketing wasn't good. Um, so yeah, I do recommend to answer the other part of the question that this is a confidential disclosure. I think that's a good idea. Um, I think that's fine. Uh, I, I can tell you this, in the 21 years we've been doing this, there's not a single InventRight student that I am aware of that has been knocked off by a company that they presented to. And I think a big part of that is our students conduct themselves professionally. So. When you do and say all the right things, you don't come across as a wacky inventor. So that three or 4% of companies, because there are some out there that, and that's not a solid statistic, it's just kind of random, but I think it's about what it is. Three or 4% of companies that might consider knocking you off, they don't want to when they see you got your act together, but they might knock off that wacky inventor. It's got not so good marketing material, saying crazy stuff, like give me a hundred grand up front, not knowing how to handle themselves on a phone call or write an email without a bunch of typos and saying weird things via email. But our students aren't doing any of that. They're doing everything right. And don't underestimate that as a form of protection over and above filing a provisional patent. Um, also, you've got the email paper trail. Um, so, but yeah, you can put this as confidential disclosure on. But you know, that makes some of them nervous because some of them, the terms are, look, what you showed me is not confidential. And hey, you got your PPA. Why are you so worried about it? You know, that's not what they're thinking. I'm saying that's what I'm thinking. So um, that might occasionally freak somebody out. If people said this is a confidential disclosure, I think it'll be fine though. So if it makes you more comfortable, go for it. 
but realize you're creating a paper trail for the, with the whole thing when you send those emails. Um, Matt says, hi, Andrew. Matt here. I'm working on a product that can be incorporated into multiple pieces of sporting equipment. Can I protect the concept even if the physical, even if the physical shape of the product changes? Yeah, if the physical shape of the product changes, the functionality is probably the same. And if the physical shape of it has four or five different iterations, throw all those into your provisional. So if if you're just changing a decorative aspect of it, and it doesn't have any functionality, then yeah. And then if you're if you've got these different um shape of the product and each one has slightly different functionality hinge moves here instead of here talk about that and cover that so you can throw everything in the kitchen sink into a provisional patent application and that's what our students do and now this is what i would say is like you know cover the other version 70 percent is good 80 90 just percent is good just as good but not the version you're pitching but when you start including versions that are half as good as your product you're now obsessed with writing your provisional patent. That's not productive. That's not even competition. So let's say somebody presented, it's not going to happen, but they, you try to license to this company, you showed it to them. And two days later, somebody showed them that version that's literally half as good. Why are you spending time throwing that in your PPA? You're wasting your time. You're getting obsessive about it. Um, hey, if it makes you feel better and you know you can, go ahead and throw it in there. But once you've been doing this for a while, you don't, you don't worry about stuff like that. So, um, so can I protect the concept? So you're protecting functionality, utility, right? So when you say concept, you know, like what is making this thing work and provide a certain benefit? Is it the hinge? You're talking about those pieces. So you're not protecting. I was like in layman's terms, patent attorneys probably won't like I say it this way, but um, you're not protecting your concept. You're not protecting your invention even. You're protecting aspects of it that would prevent people from doing it, you know? And so you're protecting functionality and utility of this product. The hinge goes this way. It works like this. It's angled like that. And you're protecting those pieces of it. And by protecting those functionality and utility of pieces of it, you are protecting the concept. So that's a better way to break it down. And um, that's something that people are new. They ask that often. It's a good, perfectly normal question to ask. Um, uh, okay. Brad said, great to see you're still doing these live streams. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. I've been doing it almost every Monday. Didn't do it last Monday because I was on vacation. Um, and you wrote, always great info. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. appreciate it. Um, uh, okay, guys, is the handle. How did Mr. Steven sell his idea without a patent? So when you hear Steven talk about on uh, YouTube, he, Steven is um, a very uh, gregarious person. So when he says, I sold my idea without a patent, what he means is he didn't go out and spend 10 grand on a patent. He filed a provisional patent application. And technically, a provisional patent application is not a patent. So that's what Stephen is referring to. Stephen always files a provisional patent application. Sometimes they'll care. Sometimes they won't. We get students doing deals all the time. They're like, oh, no, we don't care about the patent. We'll still pay you a royalty. And others are like, oh, no, we care. And maybe they give you some advance, and then you use that to pay your attorney. 
to, to upgrade that provisional patent to a full utility patent. So when, when he says, I, you know, you can sell your idea without a patent, what he means is not a patent, but you can get a provisional patent, which is a year, gives you a year placeholder in time to say patent pending. And then later, if the company wants, wants to file a patent, they can. Actually, we never have the company do it. The inventor, we always guide the inventor to do it, but they can give you the money to do it. Right. And it could be an advance. It could be an advance on royalties. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. But it's it's nice that they give you some upfront money. It's a good faith thing. Um, and if not, you could just keep that money if they're not if they're giving you a small amount of money just as an upfront fee. Um, but you're going to keep that stuff really small, guys. Um, uh, Jeff said, companies with potential licensee are moving to the next step, and they have asked me to provide a bunch of info that I'm not qualified to provide. Manufacturing costs, things, electrical engineering, and legal ramifications. Should I do my best to give them the fruits of my internet research or politely let them know it's over my head? I can't answer that question, Jeff, because I don't know what your product is. I don't know what the issues are. A lot of times you have complex products. Now, hopefully you aren't this guy, and I doubt you're this guy. Okay, I, I like to share this example as an extreme. Well, you have an invention, right? And it's a robot that jumps up on your roof and it shingles your house. And you say, well, I got this robot. It's going to jump up on my roof and shingle my house. And, uh, and you know, or I'm a contractor and I don't need to worry about workers' comp because the guy's falling off the roof, guy's sweating, you know, guy's complaining that's too hot or whatever, right? And this is my invention, a robot that shingles your house. And the company's like, well, that's interesting. It's really good. You know, how's that work? I don't know. But it's a good idea. I think you guys should do it. Okay, that's whacked out inventor territory, right? Okay, a robot. You don't know how to make a robot. Know nothing about robotics. Don't be that guy. But sometimes you're the person that has a slight modification to maybe a complicated product. And you you just go, no, this is my modification. There's all these other companies making the base product. And I just made this modification. You don't even need to understand the base product or you cite other products. You go, well, there's that and that, and I just changed this. And so it's verifying to them that they can make it, they can make it at a certain price, and they're just analyzing now your change to it, right? So Jeff, quite often that can be the case. Now, it sounds like it's electrical. Um, and you know, if your modification is very, you know, um, it makes you're making a lot of changes. You don't know a freaking thing about electrical. Why do you work on the product? You know, um, now if your change doesn't require you to understand it, or you don't know about electrical, but you can look at other products, and you can tell them, well, there's that and that, and mine's essentially doing the same thing, but I just changed it like this, and then they can look into it more. So that is something that you can tell people, Jeff. But I can't answer your question specifically. I would try to give them as much information as you can and have them take it from there. And most of the time we're able to help our students do that. And they're like, oh, okay, and I'll take it from here. But just because they ask you for a bunch of stuff doesn't mean that you need to give it to them, doesn't mean you can't talk them into doing it. And maybe you can't, then you need to go back out and get it, but you really need to evaluate, is it worth your time? How interested are they really? So a lot of times we'll have our students move forward with the conversation to verify and you quickly realize they're not as interested as you thought. So do you really want to go out and spend $8,000 an engineer to prove all this stuff out for them when you could have tried to move the deal forward a little bit? So, Jeff, I can't specifically ask your question. Yeah, Jeff wrote, not that guy. Good. That's good, Jeff. 
I learned through EE to build a working prototype. Um, they're asking me some advanced EE questions. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, I, I would suggest, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, it sounds like you're pretty technical, Jeff. Um, I would ask them, if they if they can get you can give them enough information where they can go get some quotes in their uh, contractor they go to or their own usually it's not their own plant these days few people have their own plants anymore usually they have some contractors overseas or in the U.S. or wherever and try to get them to research that a little bit a little bit more um, you know you can if you find an engineer if you have to do it yourself and they don't want to do it. Um, you can find an engineer, but make sure it's an engineer that understands the manufacturing because engineers, sometimes they'll give you advice, but it's not with manufacturing in mind. That's just a waste, right? But I would really try to get them to do it, Jeff, and, and try to move it, move it forward. But it, it gets into the, like all the specifics of the situation, you know, and in this chat, we can't get into it, but, um, they're asking me really advanced EE questions. Yeah. Um, if you, it sounds like you're fairly technical. If you can find other products that are performing that functionality, you may not even know how they're accomplishing it. Go, well, they got those over there and, and it's going at that price. So that's what I would try to do. And with, so without getting into all the specifics, if you can do that, go for it. You know, you wrote, yeah, great. I think you wrote great. Thanks. So, okay. Good deal. Um, uh, Okay. Re RZL is the handle. Hi, Andrew. I submitted a PPA with multiple alternate embodiments, but the problem is I had made an error with the labeling on the AE. Uh, I don't know what AE is. Would it, would it, would it invalidate everything um, or just the part? Um, You made an error, I don't know, with labeling on the AE. Well, if you filed a provisional, if you're really concerned about it, the easy fix is just take that same provisional, fix it, add whatever you want, alternative embodiment. Okay. Yeah, and spend another 75 bucks. So if you're worried about it, you think it's going to mess you up. Now, another way to do it, which is probably what I would do, is I would just go out there, start shopping around. And before you show it to a potential licensee, because the first thing you do when you get interest isn't show them your PPA. Not at all. You have other conversations. Um, and then when you get some traction, because there might be something else you forgot and you missed too, then file a second PPA and change it and fix it. So that's what I would do. But you can go ahead and do that now. It only costs you another 75 bucks. Um, and if you if you had a patent attorney file your PPA, you could still refile um, that yourself and just pay the 75 bucks. And you could add or change whatever you wanted to. Um, uh, Real said, thank you. I know that you're not a patent attorney, just hoping to speak from personal experience. So hoping, I'm hoping for not wanting to spend another 75 bucks. Yeah, you know, what? so what you could do is, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. You could just get some traction, get it out there, and then um, file a provisional later once the company wants to see it. And yeah, whatever you changed, if you have two provisionals, if you have A and B and you filed it at this date, you're protected from A and B from that date for a year. 
And then let's say you file the next one three months later and you add C to it, you're protected from C from that date. So you're taking a little bit of a chance, but if you want to save 75 bucks, I think it's fine. Um, like I said, for us, with our students, I haven't had one of our students get knocked off that I'm aware of by a company in 21 years. So, you know, people really worry about the protection stuff when you should really be worrying about good marketing materials, pushing it out, talking to companies and being in the game. Um, let's see. Reality is the handle. How important is an NDA when reaching out to companies and is, is an NDA that I find online good enough to send after I customize it? Well, there's, I'm not giving anybody legal advice here, but what I can say is if you ask every company in most industries to sign your NDA before you show them a product, you're going to feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall. It's not practical. I don't care if an attorney told you to do it. It's not practical. So we're very practical about reaching out. You filed your provisional patent. You're creating a paper trail. What more do you want? You filed your provisional patent before you reached out. You're creating a paper trail showing you're the first true inventor, not them. And they need to show a paper trail if they were. And so to ask, I've covered, I cover this on almost every Q&A, so I'll keep it short. Let's say they're getting 100 ideas a month and every inventor has their own NDA. They need an attorney in there like part-time just to review them all. Make sure you didn't write something that they own your company. Now, if you ask for their NDA, most of the time I say, don't even bother doing that. Like you got your PPA and most of the time their NDA won't protect you. Um, now, sometimes there's something nice reciprocal in there, but um, they're, they're, they're okay with you signing their NDA because they reviewed it, their attorney approved it and they say, everybody needs to sign this or just when it's necessary, you need to sign this. And some of them like, they don't care. They're just like, yes, yeah, send it on over. They're not mentioning NDAs. This perception that it's a normal part of licensing that everybody signs an NDA before showing anything is absolute bullshit. It's it's a fabrication. It's not real. Um, now, um, if you had a trade secret and you didn't have any intellectual property, there's no way you could get intellectual property on it. Then an NDA would be really smart to do that. Um, but then you you know if they publicly disclose it, you're still screwed. But then you know they they publicly disclosed it. You'd have to prove damages, all that, and loss of money, and all that. So um, I am not giving legal advice here. Please seek the service of an attorney before you move forward with doing an NDA or a non-NDA. But I can tell you, our students all the time are perfectly happy with their PPA and the email paper trail. Um, now, an NDA is very common with our students when, you know, let's say they want to see your prototype, if you have one, or want to see some CAD drawings, or want some more confidential information. Now you're maybe the one inventor in 100 in that month that they showed interest with, then they're usually pretty okay with signing your NDA. But up front, which seems weird, right? It's like, well, I got to agree to keep it confidential before I show it to them. But it's, you know, they're like, what are we agreeing to keep confidential? We don't even know. Then it might put us in a difficult position. What if we're developing something similar? So that's what a lot of their NDAs or non-confidentiality agreements say. Hey, whatever you own is what you own. Whatever we own is we own. We can't agree to keep it confidential because we don't know where you're sending us yet. You know, but you filed your provisional, you're, you're good. So they don't all say that. Um, some uh, agreements that companies will send you, you don't want to sign. You want to read it for that reason. Not many, but a few. You do get them. Don't be lazy. Read it. You know, you don't want it to say, we'll, we'll pay you a maximum of $5,000 and never anything more than that. Okay, don't be dumb. Re read it. You know, make sure. And you see weird stuff like that once in a blue moon. Um, not very common, but you do see it. We do see it. We're seeing it a little bit more often now, but it's not like become rampant or anything like that, but a little bit more often. Um, 
Margie, Margie, uh, do companies ever do cash per item royalty? One dollar per item sold instead of a percentage is one better than the other. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You could do one way or the other. Yeah, we've had done it. Most of the time it's a percentage because then they can go up and down on price. And some quite often it's up and then you're getting a higher royalty. But yeah, you can do a flat rate per unit. Um, don't think that that's necessarily a good idea. A lot of them would like to be able to go up and down in price and have your royalty adjust. Um, but I would say, I'm just going to guess, I need to talk to our negotiation coach, but maybe... 4% of the time, it's a flat dollar amount as opposed to a percentage. Very, very rare. Maybe five at most. Um, very rare. Um, Cristiano, at what point in your negotiations can you explain your idea without risking giving them enough to get their own patent despite of your PPA? You got to show them what your product is, Cristiano. You can't hold back on that. Now, some products, you make a sell sheet or marketing piece. It's just obvious. Everything is obvious about it. Like nothing is hidden. You're like, I understand exactly how this works. Other times you can show the benefit of the product, but they don't understand the inner workings. And you wouldn't discuss that in a marketing piece anyway, because the marketing is for their customer. So, oh, they look at it and go, oh, if our customer saw this, you're not going to include tons of technical specifications. If our customer saw this, they would be interested. So if your product is one of those, great, but don't hold back to the point at which they're not understanding the product. That's that's a rookie move. Um, so again, if you don't believe me, I can't tell you you're not going to get ripped off by a company. Everything happens once in a while, but hasn't happened to one of our students. But our students conduct themselves professionally. Cristiano, I don't know what you're doing and saying. You're still in the paranoid inventor mode, and that's fine. I think it's great that you ask those questions because that's a big part of what we do is help getting people out of that mode. Because if you never show your idea to anybody, guess who ripped you off? yourself. You rip yourself off. Most inventors rip themselves off out of their own fears or blow tons of money with patent attorneys in addition. And it way like one 10,000 times more often than a company would steal their idea. So, but um, Cristiano, it's just something you have to get past. It's a normal thing for people that are new. Totally okay. You ask the question. Um, but at what point in your negotiations can you explain your idea without risking them giving them enough to get their own patent. Well, keep in mind too that when you're showing them a certain product and you've got your PPA, you may have other variations covered in the PPA that aren't what you're showing to them. And they can't see that. And that's great. So don't show them your PPA early on in the game either. So that if that makes you more comfortable to know that, which it should, yeah, PPAs are amazing. Um, okay. Uh, Okay, uh, Scuba Steve, can you explain an LLC and is it absolutely necessary to create one to sign a licensing agreement? Um, we will not let, we're this insistent upon it, we will not let our students do a deal under their own name. Our negotiation coach, the student if they wanted to, because the deal is between them and the company, if they wanted to go against their advice, they could. We always say when you're in the midst of a deal and it looks like it's getting closed, always do it under an LLC or a corporation. Most of our U.S. students just do an LLC, limited liability company, because it's it's simpler. You have the equivalent in some other countries. You have a lot of international students. Um, but you you just want to limit your liability more. You're protected every which way till Tuesday with licensing. One, it's very few companies that put the inventor on the package. So they don't know you exist. 
Two, you don't have deep pockets. If somebody got hurt with the product, they're going to go after the company. They're not going to go after you. But let's say they find you. Um, you're also in the contract that's going to you're going to be insist that you're covered under their product liability insurance. Usually that's a one to two million at very least. It doesn't cost them a dime. I've never heard of a single instance where it costs the company one penny more to put you under their contract for that product. But there, it doesn't cost them anything more to insure you in addition to them for that product. Um, and then in addition, you've got an LLC too. So there's nothing in that company. You know, you get paid your royalties there and then you take it out. So if somebody wanted to sue you, I've never had it happen in 21 years, not in 21 years. I've had students work on, I haven't even heard of a student where the company got sued because somebody got hurt. I have students work on ladders, knife products, all sorts of stuff. I've never heard of an instance, there might've been of one of our students where they said, oh, the company got sued for somebody used my product and sued them. I've never heard of that um, because they got hurt with it or what have you. So um, you're covered every which way till Tuesday under your LLC. You're covered under their liability insurance. They don't know you exist as the inventor. And even if they did, why would they go after you? You don't have the kind of money that they're looking for to what they're going to sue. So these are all the reasons why. But that's why you really want to do the LLC. Now, I tell our students, look, you can do that when you're in the midst of your first deal. It's just one more thing to do. You're trying to get up and running, trying to learn licensing, working on all these products. They could care less if you do it at the tail end when you're the final stage of negotiating. Hey, guys, I want to do it under this new company name. They're like, I don't care. Whatever company name you want to do it under. So don't think that you're going to screw yourself if you didn't do it sooner. And you do it later when you get a deal on the table. Um, there is a really cool website. I had this guy on as a speaker. Um, I think it's LLC University. I'm going to type it in here. And oh, yeah, it is. It's LLCUniversity.com. I'll put it in the chat here. Um, this guy is great. It's all free. And he shows you in your state exactly how to file an LLC and do it yourself. Um, you don't need an attorney to do that, but he gives you in each state. I did my own in in, in for InventRight, for my other business. I did. So it's, it's easy. Anybody can do it. Um, Okay, uh, this would be the last question, and then I think we're going to call it a day. Uh, Janessa, which parts of the licensing process should I be hiring someone else to help me with rather than risk doing wrong on my own? Um, Janessa, I mean, when we help our students, they're reviewing everything before you send anything. So they're reviewing your sales sheet. They're reviewing your list of companies. You're checking in with them on what you're saying and what you're doing. So you're only like a half a step off the path at the very most. Um, but uh, if you're hire somebody, you're just going to come across these invention promotion companies. And if you go to inventorfraud.com, inventorfraud.com, there's jump off points for the Federal Trade Commission, the Patent Office, and they warn about these companies and how they work. I've never met a single inventor in the 21 years I've been doing InventRight that has had one of these invention promotion companies license a product. But every day, every other day, I hear from somebody that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand. So you need to do it yourself, but you need somebody to check to make sure you're doing it right. But Janessa, you're in charge. And if you're an InventRight student, you had a coach, they're checking everything before it goes out. You're never flying out and doing this big presentation. It's usually like an email, quick phone call. And so you're never on the spot. So you can do this. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. Um, so I, now you're saying which parts can you hire out? So for instance, like your coach helps you if you're a student of ours, 
with what needs to be in your marketing piece. But then our design studio, which is we we have professional graphic designers, they make it pretty. I don't recommend you do your own sell sheet. You know, you do your own marketing piece. You do your marketing, but then you need a graphic designer or professional to make it pretty. And that's not expensive these days. There's no reason for anybody to be doing their own graphic design because it, it it'll look different. It won't look as good, you know. Um, so hopefully that. Uh, Steve Smith says, when you're filing a related question, when you're filing your PPA, um, should you file it under your own personal name or your LLC? You can do you can do either, um, and you can switch to. Um, but if you have the LLC, I go ahead and file it in the LLC. If you don't, just do your personal name, and then you can switch it later. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, yeah, so thank you, Jay Bell. Thank you, Janessa. Um, and thank you, everybody, for the great questions. I really appreciate it. Um, Brad, thank you. I, I took a, I'm kind of a workaholic, and I actually took a week off when I went to Sedona, Arizona. It's beautiful, a little tourist town, but I went in my RV, and it was just, just beautiful landscapes. Um, very, very peaceful. It was great. If you guys haven't taken a vacation in a long time, I highly recommend it if you can. I don't do it often enough. I do it almost never. Um, so that's why I wasn't here next week. I will be back next Monday. We don't know how long we'll be doing these Monday sessions, but we've been doing them for quite some time. People really love them. And and I, I just love you guys. You guys are great. Um, you guys ask great questions. You guys are very kind. Oh, I just want to ask very quickly, if, if you're not already subscribed, there's a subscribe button below. Click on subscribe. We want to get to 80,000 subscribers within six to eight months. And so, and then if you're watching our YouTube videos, give a thumbs up to everything, but make sure to subscribe. If it already says subscribe, don't click on it again because then it'll unsubscribe you. You can just click on it again. But um, that could be one way you could show love back a little bit for me helping you guys out for an hour. So if you could do me that favor, that would be great. And I'll remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. And we'll catch up with you next time. Bye. See you guys.